0: Do you also find at times that we are way too preoccupied with our comforts and our material desires? That we prefer to distract ourselves with food, shopping and entertainment rather than asking questions such as what's the meaning of life and what's my purpose here? Now, I do believe that we all, each of us, have a purpose for this life, a gift to share with the world. And when we do, we feel happy, in alignment, fulfilled. And if we don't, we feel rather empty and anxious and depressed. But what about you? Do you feel like life is just a meaningless string of events that we have to get through ideally comfortable and maybe with a little joy? Or do you believe that there is a bigger purpose behind all of it? Well, to give us some answers and some inspirations, I have invited today Mark Gober, who is a speaker and author of an award-winning book, which is called An End to Upside-Down Thinking, and his newest book, An End to Upside-Down Living. So thank you so much, Mark, for being here today. Welcome to Get Real with me, Dr. Friedman. If you want to live with greater purpose, authenticity, and empowerment this is your time to upgrade your belief systems unlock your true potential and discover the endless possibilities of you becoming the creator of your life
1: thank you for having me and i'm looking forward to this conversation
0: well you have been already with your first book on uh, the show and i really enjoyed our conversation at that time but I'm sure many uh, viewers haven't really watched the first show. So we have to get them all up to speed to understand really what your second book was about. Now, let me ask you first, you are someone who is not necessarily, uh, or hasn't started your journey out as a seeker of truth and consciousness. I mean, you were like, dabbling in astrophysics. You were a tennis player, like a really good one at college. You were uh, mm-hmm. an investment banker. Now, why have your whole trajectory shifted and you ended up doing what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, well, I never expected to be writing books and talking about the topic of consciousness. It was never on my radar. Like you said, I, my background's in business. But it, in 2016, I was listening to podcasts, not looking for anything like this, but I was listening to health and business podcasts. And there was a woman on one of the shows that I was listening to who talked about psychic abilities that she had and that she worked with energy. And she talked about all these kind of metaphysical, paranormal topics that didn't really make sense to me, but she was speaking about them in a serious manner as if they were actually real to her. So I was thinking like, is she delusional? Is she lying? Or is there some reality to what she's saying? And that, the long story short is I ended up listening to many more podcasts after hearing that one and just out of curiosity. And then I started to look at science and realized there was actual scientific backing for many of these ideas and it rocked my world. It still continues to rock my world and I'm having to recalibrate everything. And, and my books and my podcast series called Where's My Mind, or is, they're really outgrowths of my own personal interest. So that's the, the short story is that I, I wanna better understand reality. I came across quote unquote anomalies that didn't make sense relative to what I had learned before. So I've had to rethink reality and try to figure out what's actually going on.
0: Now, one of your really amazing uh, synthesis about uh, where physics and maybe our conventional thinking has gone off the rail is about consciousness and the brain. So you know, explain a little bit more, A, what is consciousness, and and why do we have it backwards, which is, I think, pretty much what upside down thinking is all about, right?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because this is the core issue, probably in anything I I do now, and anything I will do in the future, because it gets to the nature of reality and what we are as human beings. The, The traditional view in science, which I always thought was the case, I never even questioned this, is that we have a brain in our skull, and that brain is what creates our sense of experiencing life. The awareness that we have at this very moment and always have, which some people call consciousness. It's a very abstract thing to talk about consciousness because we can't touch it. Like I can touch my leg, but my consciousness is here and yet it's not a physical thing. We, we assume that, well, the brain must be creating that experience because we know from neuroscience that if you, let's say someone gets in a car accident, has brain damage, and then all of a sudden the person has memory loss. We can always see these correlations between what happens to the brain and the type of conscious experience someone has. But here's the really critical potential fallacy in that argument is to say that, well, because the brain's related to consciousness, it must be the case that the brain creates it. And why why can't we make that leap automatically? In statistics, there's a saying, correlation does not imply causation. So what does that mean? Imagine and to use an analogy from a philosopher, Dr. Bernardo Castro, who's looked at this closely too, he says if you have a fire, firefighters show up. If you have a larger fire, you have more firefighters that show up. So there's a, a strong correlation between the size of the fire and the number of firefighters that appear. But do we therefore conclude that firefighters cause the fire? <laughs> not necessarily, and probably not. So there might be another explanation. And and that's what my work has really sought to look at, to say, wait, there's this connection between the brain and consciousness. Science doesn't understand how this could even happen if it does. And in fact, Science Magazine, a very credible outlet, has called this the number two question that remains in all of science. How could something that's not physical, like consciousness, can't touch it. How could that emerge from something physical, like a brain and a body? And what I would argue is, The brain doesn't produce consciousness and that's why we haven't figured out this this question rather the brain is more like an antenna receiver or it's like a cell phone tapping into the cloud or more precisely the brain is like a blindfold and there's a much broader reality and when the, the brain is actually limiting what we perceive so to go back to dr bernardo kastrup his analogy is it's like we're whirlpools within an infinite stream Of consciousness. So the water represents consciousness in its analogy, where we're an individual whirlpool, but we're interconnected with everything else. We have the sense of being separate, but we're not actually separate. And we're only experiencing a sliver of the stream while we're in the whirlpool.
0: Now, I just absolutely love that analogy. I think it's just genius. But let me just be for a moment the devil's advocate and would argue, what is consciousness and how do we even know that it exists? Period. Has anyone ever seen it, measure it, or what is it?
1: Well, that's the challenge is that it's, it's an abstract concept. We all have consciousness by virtue of the fact that we are aware at this very instant. Actually, it's the only thing that we can prove in all of reality is that I, at this moment, am conscious that I am having the sense of being aware. I can't even prove that I was conscious in the past, because if I think about the past, it's a thought that occurs right now in the present moment. So at all times, everything that I'm experiencing is this present moment. So if we want to be as skeptical as possible, all we know is consciousness. And that's the reversal. That's the upside-down thinking that I'm, I'm referring to. The upside-down thinking is the belief that there's this material world, and then that we and our consciousness came about later. The world exists first, and then consciousness comes afterwards. What I'm arguing and many others have argued this too is that consciousness is the primary thing and that everything we experience by definition is within the realm of consciousness itself, even though we can't measure it with a ruler or with some kind of device. uh, It is without consciousness, we wouldn't even be able to think about the prospect of measuring consciousness.
0: Right. Now, if. I do believe what you're writing because it really resonates very much. But let's say we are sitting in these whirlpools and basically are connected to that greater stream. You call it the one mind view. Uh, Why does the brain stop us from actually connecting to that greater consciousness? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that?
1: That's, That's the big question, why? And I'll give some speculations, some inferences, because I don't think anyone knows for sure. If we think about our life as being part of an evolutionary process for consciousness. So if we are part of one infinite stream, one mind, which Dr. Kastrup says is having dissociative identity disorder, one mind in, multi, in, in lots of different whirlpools. So it's, it's, it's this one consciousness having a diversity of experiences and forgetting its own identity. And that's sort of the idea that it seems, seems to be the case that we are we feel like we're a body, I feel like I'm Mark, but actually my real identity is the one mind and I'm being blocked out from this broader consciousness while in the body. What, is, what function does that serve? Well, if I remembered everything about my full nature, maybe I wouldn't be able to have the same learning experience in this body. So it might be a function of being able to learn and evolve and grow by actually limiting what we perceive. Some would, would say it's sort of like going to school, and we're taking a test to see how we do and if we had all the answers we wouldn't have the same learning experience
0: now your um, whole philosophy is also about well this is not just one go around this is an infinite uh, stream of basically our consciousness you know having more and more experiences meaning past lives future lives and so on so is it possible that our brain also prevents us from just saying, well, I didn't like that one, so I'm just going to skip it and off myself so that I can go to the next one? I mean, is there also maybe a, a function of sitting it through and seeing it through to get the maximum out of it rather than skipping and making it comfortable?
1: I agree with that perspective. I think the challenges we experience are part of the learning process. If everything were just bliss all the time, we wouldn't necessarily be able to learn. It's through challenge and through darkness sometimes that we emerge in light. But also this topic of reincarnation, which you mentioned, I I think there's real evidence for that. Conceptually speaking, if we go back to the whirlpool analogy, it's almost like the water's being recycled. So some of the water from one whirlpool emerges in another whirlpool. And as a result, sometimes the memories actually do transfer, even though many of us don't claim to have memories of a previous life. There are many cases of young children, and this has been studied at the University of Virginia for decades, over 2,500 cases of children who have a memory of a previous life, where in some cases the researchers are able to find the person that the child is referring to through historical records. And sometimes the child has physical birthmarks or defects that align with how the person died in the previous life and in some of the cases they can find medical records that prove that there's a core that that, there's actually a person that aligns with what the child said so the I think it's a very strong line of evidence which suggesting that there is a continuation of consciousness from one to the next and there's a transference sometimes of personality traits of fears desires and even bodily traits So there's some continuity that goes on and my best guess, even if this isn't even uh, fully the the answer, I think it's maybe part of the answer is that it allows us to learn. And if we knew everything, we wouldn't have the same learning experience.
0: Well, of course, then it begs the question. So two questions. So let's say whirlpool this lifetime and you at the end go back into the stream uh how does a stream sort you back out in another whirlpool I mean you know this is just uh I mean I know in your book you said well our mind is probably too small to really understand it all which I completely agree with but it is mind-blowing to imagine how we are you know when we're back in the stream somehow is still sorting something out to have a memory of what we were before, and maybe even a continuation of the future. And uh, so how do you see that? Do you have any answers to that? Or are you as baffled as I am?
1: (laughs) Well, I would say, generally speaking, I'm baffled. I I look for answers or or hints to try to generalize theories. And like you alluded to, I I, I subscribe to the idea that our brain is so limited, that the answers are going to be beyond what we are capable of even comprehending. So the concept of infinity, for example, we know in math, infinity is a real thing. Our brain can't grasp what infinity is. So I think it's something similar. However, there are pieces of evidence which suggest there might be a structure to the reincarnation process. That there's intelligence behind it. One of the concepts that I've seen a number of times is known as pre-birth planning. The idea that our consciousness continues beyond this individual whirlpool is still in a state of awareness and intelligence and is involved in the process of quote unquote, choosing the next life. And this has come about through, sometimes people have spontaneous memories of this. And in, in my podcast, Where's My Mind, I'm reminded of one person who talked about her own memories before coming into her body. She remembers it and was saying, I don't know, this is gonna be a tough life. I don't know if I wanna go. And she was with beings. She claimed that were encouraging her to come into her body, but also through hypnosis. Sometimes right. people spontaneously talk about this, this process of choosing a body and choosing parents. I'm reminded also of a case that I heard on a podcast called Buddha at the Gas Pump. This was an adult man talking about similar memories that emerged for him, not during hypnosis, where he remembers the process of seeing, he he described it sort of like an iPhone screen, where if you like, if you double click it, you can see the different uh, screens that you could click on basically. And he said, those were the, the lives that he, he could have Hmm. chosen from (laughs) and he saw the different possibilities and the challenges he would face with his current family for example so there are these cases where people have memories whether they're induced through hypnosis or they're spontaneous memories and I find that interesting that there might be an element of of choosing but there also might be an element of coercion like in that one woman I mentioned she she was encouraged to come into the body like she needed she was going to have to do it even though she was hesitant but what does all that mean? I don't know what it means. Maybe there is an intelligence behind the way in which we evolve, that we are both choosing our, ourselves, but there's also an intelligence behind everything, which is encouraging us to have certain lessons. And the reincarnation process is the, the continuation, the cycles where we go into a body, we have an amnesia, we forget, we learn. At the end of the life, this is again an inference, there seems to be the potential for a life review. And we see this in the near-death experience. Near-death experience might be where someone's in cardiac arrest, for example, their heart shuts off. There's no blood flowing to the brain after a certain amount of time. And yet some people, when they're resuscitated, come back with memories, some of which are verified as accurate. Meaning the person says, hey, I was hovering over my body. I saw these things in the room. I saw something in the other room. And the surgeon and the, the family members say, wait, how? Could, that's not possible. Your brain was off. So these examples, which they're called veridical, out of body experiences, they suggest that it's not a hallucination sometimes because what they come back describing is accurate and therefore it can't be a hallucination. So all that, that's a long way of saying what's happening in this near-death experience might be telling us something about the nature of reality rather than a hallucination. And one such event is the life review where a person, mm-hmm. either brains knocked out of the situation, they're able to see part of the broader stream, so to speak. And they talk about reliving their whole life in a flash and they relive events through the eyes of the people that they impacted. So one man that I interviewed is named Daniel Brinkley. He's had four of these near-death experiences. He was struck by lightning once. He had open heart surgery twice and had brain surgery once. Each time he had this life review where he went back to his combat days in Vietnam. He relived the deaths of the people that he killed and relived it through their eyes. So he felt the pain of that person. And he also felt the pain of the child that would no longer have a father because he had killed the father in combat. So when people come back from the near-death experience, like this man, Daniel Brinkley, their lives are typically forever changed. They say, wait a second, I I was acting poorly towards people and I'm gonna experience that myself because we're all interconnected. Therefore, I'm gonna reprioritize my whole life to try to treat people well because that's what seems to matter in the life review. I got to see how my positive and loving interactions had a positive impact on people. And conversely, I saw the negative impact. So, what does all this tell us in the context of your question? There, there might be this evolutionary process whereby we are we forget and we see how we, we see how we do on, in the test. We see how we're able to treat people. Right. And it's through the forgetting process that this is enabled.
0: Now, in your other book, The End of Upside Down Living, you also talk about how we can implement this all into you know, a process of, let's say, living exactly like you're describing, maybe with a a greater consciousness or a greater purpose, but also, you know, a process of starting to awaken. Now, what does awakening in all of this context mean?
1: To me, it, it is the recognition of the idea that we're more than a body. We are a broader consciousness that extends beyond what our brains able to comprehend that extends beyond what our brain can remember. And what does that mean for our life, then how do we embody it, and this is a process that has been going on throughout history, I would argue that every single person actually is on the awakening journey. Because even for someone like me who was a a staunch so called materialist meaning I thought everything was just material there's no meaning to life when this body dies there's no consciousness that's the end. Um, To realizing there's something more than that. So a lot of the challenges I had in my life previous to this so-called awakening could have been the enabling factor that allowed me to be open enough to explore this. So I would say that everyone's on the awakening path at different points, but once we we achieve this recognition that there is more, there can be a process towards embodying it. And that's what part of my second book An End Upside Down Living explores. What are the challenges associated with that? Because there are many if there is a shedding of the old sense of being, the, the, the idea that I am only Mark, that I'm only a body, there's nothing beyond this body, to wait, there's more, how do I incorporate that? What do I need to shed for my ego? And that's an up and down process, which I think ultimately leads people to be in a more evolved state and often a happier state, but it can be a rocky journey to get there.
0: Well, back to the to the whirlpool, let's see, we are in the whirlpool and we are in this, Illusion of separation, and uh, all of a sudden we have this moment of awakening, and we are realizing, oh wow, there is actually a connection. And you, in your in your first book, you know, write about beautiful evidence about that connection, where consciousness can actually be transferred from one whirlpool to the next, you know, and so psychokinesis, and uh, and uh, uh, you know, there were other things that you were describing there. Uh, astral viewing and so on but what i'm what i'm curious about is just like and that's something i really loved about in your book that you wrote once you have your awakening it's not done it's not like oh now i know there is a one mind there is a flow there is no i'm enlightened actually then the process gets really hard where you have to do the cleanup and the growing and just talk a little bit more about that
1: yes one of the misconceptions in the uh, awakening field, people who study this, is that there is a final state to achieve, and some will call it enlightenment, and once you achieve that, it's over, but the more I research this, the more I think it's an in never-ending, infinite process, that there is a constant growth, constant evolution, no matter how evolved one seems to be, there's no end to it, in the same way that there might be no end to consciousness, that it might be literally an infinite stream, but there's also an, another misconception that I've come across, which is that in the awakening process, the primary and Potentially, sole purpose is to reach enlightenment and be fully awakened to know that we are the one mind, or whatever we want to call it, and to fully embody it and to experience it. And for some people, it's often a blissful state of unconditional love and to be and to get there. And that's it. It's it's known as waking up. But there are also what Doc, what Ken Wilber, who's the philosopher, he calls lines of development in the process that are sometimes relatively independent. So he, he says it's waking up, cleaning up, and growing up. Waking up is just part of the process. So cleaning up refers to the idea that many of us have trauma, whether it's trauma from this life that we haven't fully processed. It might be ancestral trauma that we're still processing through a phenomenon known as epigenetics, where trauma from an ancestor can actually be transferred. Some speak of that as a possibility, and also potential past life trauma from our individual consciousness, and maybe there's even collective trauma that we deal with because if we're all interconnected, there might be more to it. There needs to be a process to process that trauma, to clear it and to actually focus on it rather than ignore it. And to ignore that trauma or whatever darkness we have within us is known as spiritual bypass, which is a tempting thing to do to say, I just want to go for the bliss. I want to just meditate all day or do a psychedelic experience or have a near-death experience where it's all unconditional love. I want to ignore the darkness it's a very important part of the spiritual process for people to actually evolve more when they they don't do the bypass, when they go into whatever is is still dark within them. So that's cleaning up. Then I, the third area is growing up. And that's really a reference to maturation. I think there are many ways to look at it. Uh, one of which is, I think, to acknowledge reality as it is and not to, to constantly wear rose-colored glasses, to acknowledge that there is darkness and Um, And also, I think, to take responsibility, not to be a victim all the time, to take real responsibility in in our lives for ourselves and for others. So waking up, cleaning up, growing up is a simple way to remember it, that it's not just just one of those. And there are probably more lines of development as well, but just being aware of the expansion beyond waking up is important.
0: Yeah. You know, and I, I have to say, I'm really grateful for the fact that I can do work with clients on a subconscious level on cleaning up and growing up. Because in some ways you could say, well, if the brain is a filter, maybe the subconscious is the intercessor between the, you know, this one mind and the more conscious mind. Because when we do go into meditation, when we are, you know, suspending the conscious mind, usually it's a subconscious that can tune into these whatever you call it, frequencies, energies, consciousness, streams and, uh, and then, if the conscious mind, the subconscious mind is blocked with trauma and suppressed pain and these kind of things, of course, it does not have the same uh, awareness or openness to connect to the one mind. But do you believe the one mind? I mean, a lot of people would say, like, well, what's the difference between the one mind and God? What, what would you say? I mean, someone who's really religious says, well, you're talking about you know, the Bible tells us all these stories just in a different way. So, so where do you find there is an overlap or where do you feel like that may be different?
1: Well, to me, it always depends on one's definition of God. And that's often a, a term that's not well-defined. So for me, the one mind could be analogized to God, but it's not in a personal sense. So some some people would say that God is this external being, a transcendent force as a separate entity. And some would even anthropomorphize it where God has almost personal characteristics and there's an interaction of a me and a God that's separate. So to me, there is a transcendent aspect to God. But if we go back to the whirlpool analogy we're whirlpools within the stream, meaning if the water is consciousness, so to speak, we're all, we all have consciousness within us, we all have God within us, but God is also beyond the whirlpool. And some religious traditions even say this, that God is both imminent within and transcendent beyond, it's both. And if that's the definition of God, this interconnected field of intelligence, unconditional love, consciousness, awareness, if that's what people mean by God, then, then that's how I see it as well. It's interesting looking at religions, however, many of the mystical traditions, the mystical cores of all the religions that I've come across, they tend to talk about this idea of a unified field of consciousness, a unified something that we're a part of. And there might be different branches of rituals and customs and beliefs that that come off of that, but the core, at least for the mystical sects of many religions gets to the same idea that I'm speaking of, which to me is actually strong evidence that, that not only is there science backing this, but people throughout time, have arrived at similar conclusions, often because they've had experiences through meditation or psychedelics or other things where they experienced it and they say, whoa, this is how it is. Then they come back in their body and they talk about what happened.
0: Yeah. I mean, I certainly, you know, when I help people with with hypnosis to go way back, there are certainly these uh, experiences that are going into the time before this lifetime that feels like a a one mind experience a deep connection to that i don't know what you want to call it field of infinite possibilities sea of unconditional love whatever it is but it's a it's often especially for people who have no preconceived notion or even belief system just a kind of a transformational experience to go there and it it often just goes there naturally so it's definitely something that i find is inside of us this awareness we just have to unlock it and talking about unlocking you also say that the one mind is nudging us just like it nudged you to actually do the awakening so that would actually mean that the there is some you know beve, benevolent uh, intention or force in that one mind that says hey you're asleep let's let's wake you up and how does the waking up happen i mean how does it nudge us
1: mm. Well if we, if we think about the nature of consciousness, the nature of God, the nature of the one mind, I look to these spiritually transformative experiences. They can be spontaneous, they can be in hypnosis, they can be meditation, near-death experience, psychedelics, many different cases. There is a similarity in what people describe that there is an unconditionally loving force that they' are a part of that is difficult to describe with words. And to me, that's powerful because many different experiences independently are saying the same thing. So I think the nature of reality, the nature of God, consciousness, one mind is inherently benevolent. And part of our evolutionary process, the awakening process, is to embody that benevolent state, that state of unconditional love while we're here and actually to fully remember it. And when we're off course, we can have challenges that seem like challenges at the time. They might seem horrible but they're nudging us in this other direction towards something that's ultimately benevolent. And how that manifests for each person might be very different. For some people, it could be uh, it could be death or sickness. For other people, it could be failure. So I think the nudging happens in different ways. And what I found since I had this experience several years ago where I, I rethought reality, I've become more attuned to where I might be nudged. I, I look at my life as sort of a teacher and actually Gadada Maharaj, a famous sage in the Vedic tradition. He said that life is the supreme guru, mm. that we could look at our life, everything that's happening to us as a form of intelligence. And if we're hitting resistance in a certain area, whereas before I might've just gone full force ahead. Now I look and say, wait a second, am I doing something wrong? What, am, what I just, I, I evaluate things differently. Because I find in my own life and in many awakening stories that we're, when we're on the right track, things seem to move smoothly. And if there's resistance, it's a reason for us to, to examine things. Is it something that we need to clear within ourselves? Are we on the wrong path? And ultimately, everything is leading us back to the state of unconditional love. So that's always good compass as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I just right before our conversation talked to a client of mine who was completely a few weeks ago in a in a state of deep anxiety, depression, overwhelm, because she had a job that she absolutely, she told me later, it felt like my essence was squeezed to the size of a little pea. And so she stepped out of it and said, you know, I'm gonna take the leap of faith. And, and somehow she, she happened to run into a voice coach, a voice coach who has been coaching really like famous singers. And uh, somehow she got a, a session. So she went there, and the voice coach made you know, an hour session, almost two hour session, because he said, my God, you have not just talent, you are gifted, you are amazing. And, and then she really felt like, wow, I actually saw for the first time how I'm an infinite being, how I actually have so much to share. And, uh, and it really shifted her completely. So this feeling of anxiety and you know, really feeling squeezed To annihilation was the notch. I believe that really showed her, well, there is another path and there is another gift for you to experience and share. So it was really just serendipitous that we have been, you know, just talking. I just talked with her right before our conversation. Now, unfortunately, we are almost done, but I want to ask you about, you know, at the beginning, I talk about purpose. So what do you feel like knowing everything now that you have explored? What is your purpose here? In the world?
1: Well, ultimately, I think we're all here to wake up and clean up and grow up to evolve ourselves. So that's how I look at my own life. I want to perfect myself as much as possible, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually to be the best version of myself, the most authentic version of myself. And I think when we do that, whatever that means for us individually, it allows us to be the purest vessel possible for this infinite consciousness and intelligence. And when we are the purest vessel possible, we're able to be of service in some way because we're all interconnected. So to me, it always starts with the perfecting of the individual so that one can serve the collective. But it starts with the individual. That's a really important piece of it because there can be a temptation just to go externally and then leave our own stuff behind and because it's uncomfortable to do that and maybe more challenging. But there's a, there's a dual aspect to it that we work on ourselves and then we are of service as a result. At least that's how I see it.
0: And what would you tell the listeners and viewers as this is maybe the first step to be on this path? What, you know, you have like a, a list of 10 different uh, suggestions, which I loved in your book, but what would you suggest if you are just wanna explore more the one mind uh, view or just start the waking up process? What would you suggest?
1: Well, the yogic pathways to me are a good framework that, that could encompass any spiritual tradition. So I'll very quickly go through these because I think the spiritual process involves all these areas no matter what you do the first is the pathway of knowledge and wisdom so that could be listening to podcasts maybe you take you say one podcast a week i'm going to listen to to try to understand the nature of reality something that simple or it could be much more for me it was like all i did when i first became interested but just having an intention to, to learn more about the nature of reality and who what we are the pathway of selfless service thinking about how you can be of service is all, is will inherently get us there the devotional pathway which can be of a form of chanting, praying, rituals, or it could be an overall attitude of, someone would say love for the divine, the mm. acknowledgement and gratitude that we're part of this one mind. So that's devotion. And the fourth is generally energy. So that could be meditation, it could be physical, anything like working out, nutrition, breathing exercises. For me, meditation has been a big part of that, but anything that is working on the energetic physical aspects. So knowledge and wisdom, selfless service, devotion and energy. Thinking about those pathways of of how in one's life is everyone, are you in those four areas? Usually people on their awakening path start in one area and then the other areas naturally become incorporated because they're all related. For me, because this is such a focus, I'm always thinking about all four. What am I doing in each area?
0: Well, and of course, a really first step could be also to read your books. So how do they find you and how can they also listen to your podcast?
1: why I wrote my books and did my podcast really for that purpose, because for me, I had to look at many different resources that seemed really separate and some weren't credible. So I wanted to put the most credible stuff together so that people could have a starting point. And my books, An End to Upside Down Thinking and An End to Upside Down Living are on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the major bookstores, and they're on Kindle, Audible, and also Hardcover. And my podcast called Where Is My Mind is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major podcast players
0: excellent and you have a website too
1: my website is my name m-a-r-k-g-o-b-e-r.com
0: well thank you mark so much for another fascinating conversation i'm sure you're going to be on again soon because i just think there is so much to delve into but that already gave us a lot of inspiration and thank you for tuning in today i want to leave you with a quote by david hawkins which is Our contribution to the world is the perfection of our own self. With that, take good care.